Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. This morning's scripture portion begins in verse 7 of James 5 and continues through 11 and is actually the the end of the letter of James. The, The final verses 12 to 20 form a conclusion to the letter, much like verses 1 and 2 form uh, kind of an opening salutation. And this is our 19th sermon in James. We started at the beginning of the year, and so we're coming to an end here. One of the main characters in our story this morning in our passage is the character of Job. And based on Job's importance in this letter, we're actually going to pause James And for the next six weeks, we're going to, starting next Sunday, we'll be in a a short series on Job this summer. So I'm excited about that opportunity we have to learn more about that that great man. I'll be mentioning Job in this, this, this morning's sermon as well. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. This is the eternal word of God. Be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So for the reading of God's holy word, let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. Thank you that they provide for us a path through our difficulties. Indeed, particularly as we reflect on the reality of suffering and hardship and trouble from this this passage, we know, all of us know, that we need a path through these difficulties. We need help. So show us the way, Lord. Illuminate us and illuminate the path for our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. On a highway in the mountains in the middle of the night, the last thing you want is for your headlights to go out. Now, I don't exactly remember where I was or when it was, but that happened to me briefly. And then they came back on, fortunately. But for that moment that I was without my headlights, in an inky black night on a mountain road. It was scary. I mean, how am I supposed to know where I'm supposed to go? But I've been in other similar situations in the car, navigating in a rainstorm recently, when the rain is coming down so hard that you can't see between the wiper blades. They can't move fast enough driving in a fog bank where your lights actually, and and if you're not a driver yet, you're going to learn this when you get your driver's license, 
your, your headlights in the fog will bounce back at you sometimes and, and they make matters worse actually, not better. In each case though, prayer and careful navigation as well as holding on to the steering wheel and my faith in God, I was able to find my way through the difficulty. And life, I think, brings analogous situations to these sorts of car troubles. When things are difficult in your life and you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go or whom to turn to, you can feel, at least I feel, powerless, anxious, afraid, angry at times. What am I supposed to do in this situation? How am I supposed to find my way through the difficulty? Well, that's the title of my sermon this morning, Finding Your Way Through Difficulty. And in our passage, the last passage in the actual letter of James, before he concludes in the final verses, James gives a collection of instruction that will help you find your way through life's difficulties. Now, in this passage, it's interesting, he, he ends his letter as he begins by referring to the troubles or trials that we face in life. The topic of trials is how James started the letter. He said in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when faced with trials of many kinds. And he goes on to explain how we should and how we shouldn't relate to such problems when we meet them. Now again, as he's ending his letter, James picks up the topic of trials and provides some important instructions for people in the midst of hardship. I think James is writing so that we can not only avoid those feelings of panic and helplessness that I felt on the road, or I feel on the road at these times, but more importantly, I think he wants me to learn to be obedient to the Lord in those trials. In other words, the guidance that the scripture gives isn't just so that I can feel better about life's hardships, although it does do that. Pure joy is a great way to feel when you're in the middle of trials. But the guidance that the Lord gives is also to help us to be obedient to God, which itself, for a mature follower of Christ, is its own satisfaction. So finding your way through difficulty and in the text, I see three instructions that James gives, like headlights on an inky black night that will guide you away from fear, but also help orient you towards living the way that God wants you to live. So the first instruction is the importance of patience. The importance of patience. Why is patience important? Well, three reasons. First of all, God himself is patient. In Romans 2.4, God's patience along with his kindness and forbearance is what we're told leads us to repentance. In Romans 9, God's patience makes his power known. In 1 Peter chapter 3, God's patience in the day of Noah waits in order that he might uh, do his perfect plan in spite of the fact that the world is incredibly evil at the time. I love the story in Matthew 18 where God's patience is compared to forgiveness. And Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1 was even though he was a notoriously wicked sinner, God's patience was shown to him so that people would believe not only that God exists, 
but that God loves and saves sinners. Because patience is an attribute of God related to time, it's important for us to understand God's patience because it it reveals a difference between us and God. See, what, what we sometimes consider to be enough time, and you start tapping your fingers, okay, en- enough time, we're done. God's like, uh, no, we actually, I didn't even start the timer yet. Patience and thinking about the attribute of patience in God is a way for us to think about the way that God frames time. You know, frame sets the boundary on a picture. And if you find yourself looking at a picture up close, you're only looking at a small portion of it. But then if you back up and you can see the whole picture around the whole frame, you see everything that the artist meant you to see. And sometimes we're like that. We're staring at a very small portion of the picture. And God's patience is much farther back and is a much larger canvas that you almost have to look like this to see the whole thing. So by learning about God's character and by understanding God's character of patience, we learn to imitate him. There's something about our watches, our our timekeeping, that as we study God and as we learn more about God and as we dwell with God and God dwells with us, he begins to give us more of his time frame than our own. We see this specifically in our text, I think, verse 8, when, when James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. This is what I'm looking at. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. See, patience in the human heart go hand in hand. The human heart is like the control center of of your body. It's where all the important issues of your life happen. Your identity is located in the heart. Um, If you're afraid, you, you feel faint of heart, or scripture says your heart will melt. Think about an ice cube on a hot day melting on the table. That's how the human heart reacts in the presence of trouble or disaster. It melts. As the control center, it's where your feelings come from. It's where you make your decisions. It's where you get your identity. It is also where worship begins in the human heart. But the heart, you see, is weakened by sin. It doesn't function the way that it should. We can easily lose heart and, as I say, grow faint in heart. When God has promised that all will be well and then all isn't well, we can quickly harden our hearts to God and turn away from God in our hearts, even if in our bodies we're still doing or appear to be doing what God wants. And so when we harden our hearts, the heart, instead of becoming a center of worship, it becomes a a generator of lies and of idolatry and pride. That's the bad news, but the good news is that God's in the business of giving a new heart. He says, I will take your heart of stone out of you, speaking of a spiritual transformation now, and I will give you a heart of flesh, something that's stone, if you knock on it, it's solid. 
It isn't soft. It isn't tender. It isn't open. It's coarse and condensed and closed. And that's what sin has done to our hearts. It's closed us off from God and we can't receive his word. When we do, we don't like it. But the soft, new, heavenly heart that he gives us gives us understanding. It it helps us to make sense of what God is doing in our lives and in the world. The new heart is also united instead of being divided. This is a great prayer. Lord, give me an undivided heart. An undivided heart. Now, I know there's chambers in the heart. I'm not talking about the physical organ. I'm talking about all your affections, all your intentions, all your aspirations are pointed first and foremost to the Lord. And you're not pulled like a tug-of-war in two different directions. An undivided heart. And James has stressed this in the book. The the double-minded man is a person, a man or a woman, who who has his or her attention pulled over here towards something in life or in the world, and then over here towards God and his word. The double-minded man is someone who's, who's not quick to listen to the Lord, but quick to listen to his or her own passions and desires. And so we pray for a united heart that God would bring all of our broken pieces of our heart, all of our different affections and experiences and inattentions and distractions, that he'll bring them all together in a new heart. And so that's what the heart is. And so James has all that in mind when he says, establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The word establish refers to something that's firm something that is solid. And this is how God is, you see. When you go to God, he he doesn't change towards you today versus yesterday or tomorrow. He's always the same. He's reliable. He's faithful. And so in imitating God's patience, we're really imitating God's heart because God is steady. He hasn't changed his word or his plan. It continues. He's not caught off guard. He's not angry, he's not disappointed, he's not shocked or surprised. He's established, he's firm. The heart of the Lord towards you is clear. He has a plan for your life. He's working actively in your life. He's not surprised by the things that are surprising you. He can be trusted, in short. Sometimes if you travel by train, you need to check the schedule because if it's a holiday, like it's coming up on July 4th, the train schedule runs on a different time. And these days you can probably just use Google to do that. But the point is that if you didn't know the schedule, you would miss your train. But with God, the schedule never changes. He's always there. He's always for you. He's firm. He's established. He's the unchanging God. And so we're we're to look to this God and imitate him by being in his presence and trusting him and believing in him. 
This is the importance of patience. Is that it imitates the Lord's character, but it also anticipates his coming. Patience is not only important because it imitates God, but it also anticipates the Lord's coming. The word coming shows up a couple of times in our text. It's actually the word parousia. Be patient, therefore, brothers, verse 7, until the parousia, or the coming, of the Lord. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the parousia, the coming of the Lord, is at hand. God's coming. You can't see him now, and we're, we're, we're to walk by faith now, but that won't always be the case. And when he returns, the chaos of the world, the madness, the, the foolishness, the division, the craziness, the sin, the wickedness, the injustice of all of that will be made right. And you will finally be delivered if you belong to the Lord and your faith is in him. Those who believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life that we could never live, who died on the cross for a sinner, an undeserving sinner, and then who rose again in power from the dead, in glorious power, that one is coming again. When the disciples watched him ascend into heaven, the angels instructed them, he's coming back, and we have work to do. The point is that his parousia, his return, will be preceded by signs, the scripture says. When it happens, it will be obvious to all, as obvious as a, a lightning strike illuminates the entire heavens. Now, we can't know the day or the time of his parousia, but it will involve the final full and perfect deliverance of all of God's people. What an encouragement. The Lord himself, we are told, will come with power and all of his foes will perish. Every knee will bow, some willingly. I personally hope, pray, believe, and trust that at the parousia of the Lord, I will with joy and gladness fall on my face in celebration. But at one time in my life, I would have not have celebrated the coming of the Lord. But what the scripture says is I will still fall on my face if that were still true of me. There's a forced kneeling and a willing kneeling. But all will kneel and all will bow at the parousia, the coming of the Lord. In fact, it isn't just a change of men, but the heavens and the earth will be replaced and renewed by fire. And a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells will appear. But is it near? I mean, James is probably the first letter written. It's maybe 42 AD. So Jesus has been dead 10, 12 years when James writes this. It was near then? Is it still near, almost 2,000 years later? We need to think about this word, the coming of the Lord is near, or the coming of the Lord is at hand. What does it mean? It can mean a nearness in terms of like the actual amount of time, like, you know, speaking of trains, the train's coming in five minutes, the coming is near. But the way that the Bible speaks of the parousia isn't in terms of time. If it were, then we could calculate it. Some people try. 
the nearness of God isn't so much a matter of the second hand moving on the clock or the calendars turning off one year, seven years, two years, or in the sixth year, six and a half, seven years. The nearness of Christ is more about the readiness of Christ. This is what I'm saying. The coming of the Lord is at hand. All is ready. It could happen at any moment. All has been prepared. It may be yet many, many more years, and in some ways we need to live as if it will be. But we also need to live in a poignant personal recognition that all has been accomplished, all is necessary in order for Christ to wrap up time and the things of time. History is ready for the return of Christ. We are living in the end of the ages. This is the last day. Today is indeed the day of the Lord. There's great instruction here about anticipating his coming. This is why patience is important, you see. It helps us to anticipate his coming. In 2 Peter chapter 3, let's turn a couple pages over in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 to think about this parousia and patience particularly. Second Peter 3 begins in my Bible with the heading, The Day of the Lord Will Come. And then jumping down to verse 8 of Second Peter 3, Do not overlook this one day, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So our measure of time and God's measure of time clearly is different. And then in verse 9, we see that God is not slow in keeping his promises. It seems like it, but it's near. It's at hand. He's done everything that he needs to do. And so in verse 9, what seems like a delay to us is in fact the patience of God. It's a, it's a virtue of God. And like I said, we can be sure we don't know exactly how the, t- the, the time and the day will come. It's like a thief, you see in verse 10. We can be sure that we're not sure. But when it does happen, it will involve the dissolution of the current heavens and the earth. Look at verse 10 of Second Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so since this is the case, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening for the coming day of God? Patience. You see, the the parousia, the coming of the Lord, helps you to be patient by anticipating the coming, by thinking correctly about the coming of the Lord, you will find yourself instilled with spiritual power through patience. There's a silly illustration. Maybe you do this with your family, kids. Maybe you, you, you've grown up doing this. I did it growing up, and our kids did it growing up. When you drive through a tunnel, what are the instructions? Take a deep breath, put your hand on the ceiling of the car, and see if you can hold your breath all the way through the car or all the way through the tunnel. Anybody do that? And then if you have to take a breath, do it like this. So your brother or sister can't see that you're breathing. 
you cheated. No, I didn't. I did notice as um, I started swimming as an exercise that I was able to hold my breath through the tunnel longer. I can win the car game better. But my point in this illustration is in a long tunnel, it's a lot harder to do. But once you see the light at the end of the tunnel, literally the, the shining light at the end of the tunnel, you're like, I think I can do this. Just a little bit more. This is how the parousia helps us. Patience is fueled by the knowledge that the end is at hand, that all things have been accomplished, that God is at work. His time frame is different than ours, but he's coming back, and he's coming back very soon. Patience is important for finding your way through the difficulties of life because it imitates God's character, it anticipates his coming, and thirdly, it avoids the Lord's judgment. Our text actually warns us about judgment back in James chapter 5. In verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Nothing says impatience quite like complaining does, does it? Are we, speaking of car rides... What's the famous question the kids ask? Are we there yet? Almost. 20 minutes was always the answer. 20 minutes. James has taught us already in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 that judgment is a reality for the covenant community. And I made the claim that James 5, 1 through 6, as stern and strong as the warning is to the rich, that it is very possible that these are rich believers who have either forgotten or become quite lazy with their faith, and they're living like this world is their home, even though God has told them otherwise. So judgment is something that Christians do need to be aware of, specifically when it comes to the sin of grumbling or complaining. This may be connected to perhaps a sin on behalf of the poor or the laborer that's mentioned in the first part of James 5. The, one that are being, the ones that are being taken advantage of in James 5, 1 through 6 might be tempted to speak ill against their business, the business owner or the landlord or, or the, the rich person, to grumble. God, why, why did you set him off so well? Why can't I have some of that? When am I going to get my share? Why do I have to constantly be treated like this? So my inference here in verse 9 of chapter 5 is that if the grumbling's going on between the rich and the poor in the Christian community, or the haves and the have-nots, the employed and the unemployed, or whatever the division or barrier may be, the grumbling is wrong because it doesn't, it doesn't speak well of the fact that we are all part of the same family. Twice, three times in our passage, he refers to us again, his favorite word, brothers. And this means the men and the women together, it's the brethren, it's the assembly, the family of God, the sons of God, we're all together in the same family. We're the redeemed people of God. And so patience, you see, helps us to relate to one another in community. Now a lot of Christians, particularly in our day, in the suburbs, modern, we can sort of avoid each other. We can just show up on Sunday, we have cars, we often don't see each other in our workplaces, 
We travel at great distances to church and to work and to shopping and everything, and we're just we're doing our lives for ourselves. In an earlier time, human beings would rub shoulders and bump into each other a lot more than we do now. I'm not sure we're better off, but it does give the impression sometimes that we're not complaining about one another, but we are. We are. And a church is not healthy if the Christians are complaining, but neither is it as healthy if they're not hanging out together and doing life together in such a way that they don't have to complain. See, patience helps us to, be, to move into one another's lives, even people that are different than us, and accept them and enjoy them for what God is doing in their lives and not feel the need to compare ourselves or to measure ourselves or to critique the other person but to love and embrace them. But it isn't just complaining about riches, I think. Since this is the last passage in James before he wraps up his letter, I think we're intended to think here about the grumbling that he's referred to throughout the book. I think we're told to think here about being a double-minded person, James chapter 1, where someone were to think here about the fact that the complaining that we give to God sometimes. God, why did you give me this problem? And James says, no, the sins in your life, the struggles aren't coming from God. God gives good gifts. He's sovereign over your sin. He's sovereign over your troubles, but he's not the source of your problems. Sin and, and your own uh, wayward ways are the source. Listening to yourself and to the fallen human nature, the flesh, rather than listening to God and his word. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You know, if all you're listening to is the tape that's playing in your head, you are going to be a complainer big time. But if you're listening to the word of God and to godly counselors, it's not easy. But those inputs, that fresh heavenly input, that's going to take care of complaining as you think in your own mind as you relate to your spouses, to your children, to your parents, to your brothers, your sisters, your friends, students in your program at school, and certainly people in the same church. Practicing empty religion or living out your faith, I think, is something that we need to put in this category. The judge is at the door. The judgment that's coming to the church isn't just for complaining, although that's what's mentioned here. The judge is standing at the door examining those who, who have faith without works. It's James chapter 2. Abraham was a friend of God because he did the will of God and he lived out his faith in real and meaningful ways. And James chapter 3 warns about people being teachers. Not many should be teachers. Why? Because of the words that we say and, and teachers can be the worst complainers of all. And so we need wisdom from above in James chapter 3. Not the earthly, demonic wisdom. The fighting and quarreling that's taking place in James chapter 4. We're so caught up in our own passions and we're looking at one another as enemies in our relationships that we're compared to adulteresses in James 4. We're whoring ourselves after our own desires instead of being wedded to the one God who loves us and has redeemed us. Well, that's the importance of patience. The second instruction 
and more briefly to help you find your way through life's difficulties is to draw inspiration from godly examples. And there are three godly examples in our text. There's a a farmer in verse 7, there are the prophets in verse 10, and then there's mighty Job in verse 11. Before I jump into these examples, though, I just want to ask you, do you have a mentor in your life? Is there someone that, like, you could pick up the phone and call the person, him or her? Maybe in your career, your vocation, someone you call for dealing with the problem at work. Um, What about, like, a Bible study leader or someone who led you to Christ? If you're a Christian, you know that there is a spiritual mentor. Sometimes I call these spiritual fathers and mothers. If you're a young child, your mentor may still be your parents. Maybe you you look up to your dad a great deal, or you you just are amazed at the gifts that your mother has as a Christian woman. Maybe it's an aunt or an uncle. Maybe it's a grandparent. I had mentors in all of these categories. My parents are my mentors. My grandparents were mentors. I have aunts and uncles that I am just, just incredibly admiring of them. One of them, my Uncle Bill, recently went to be with the Lord. As I sat and listened to my Uncle Bill's life story, I was just amazed at the incredible man. There will never be another man like him. So I have mentors that have gone on to be with the Lord. I have mentors that are alive. I I had an email just yesterday from one of my mentors, a professor at a seminary, who's helping me wrestle with a difficult theological problem. And I asked him advice, and he gave me some good counsel. And then I asked advice for some younger guys, and they gave me the opposite counsel. I went back to my mentor, and, I, and he says, you need to learn to be your own man. You've got to stick to your guns. Wow. In his wisdom, and I, and I, think, I don't think he's entirely right, because my young friends had some good input. He said, Take their input, but remember, at the end of the day, you have to answer to the Lord. I'll return to that at the end of the sermon, but we have godly examples. We have some biblical mentors that are set before us here. One is an unnamed farmer. I'm going to take it almost as a parable, but it's kind of an illustration in verse 7. Look at the farmer. You almost see James, you know, pointing out over the field like his older brother Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at the lilies of the field. See how the farmer, see how that farmer over there? He waits for the precious fruit of the earth. So beautiful. He's patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You should be like that, he says. I was talking with, I think it was uh, Paul, Paul Alkema in our church was telling me we were, he, he's, he loves farming. He has a piece of land and he's caretaking this land. And uh, Candace won't let him do it, but if he, if he could do anything, he'd be a farmer, he told me. I, I, th- I think there's, you know, that there's this, uh, back in the revolutionary day, there was this idea of a gentleman farmer. I know slavery is an issue and we want to, we want to abhor the way in which our country depended on the, 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 the labor of, uh, of, of slaves in, in our early days. I recognize that. But there's something beautiful about a, a man working with his hands in the ground, dirt in the fingernails, 
growing things. Even if it's just a tomato plant like I have on my front porch, I'm a farmer. Don't let anybody tell me differently. There's three tomato plants, actually. And just landscaping. I mean, I'm growing some serious grass in my yard. It's looking good. But it doesn't happen all at once. I've got to water it. And then there's bare spots. I've got to go back, fertilize it, get rid of that clover. It's a problem. And it takes time. And so I'm already thinking about next year's grass. 2023 is going to be my year. I thought I'd get that putting green this year. It's going to have to wait till next year. But next year, I'll meet you on my front yard. Bring that putter. So a farmer is, is someone who understands the timing of things, the, the patience and the, the grind. But patience isn't just grinding it out. It's, it's a quiet confidence, isn't it? I mean, it's a precious fruit is what it says in verse 7. These seeds, you know, the seeds of a farmer, I used to be a pastor in a farming community. These seeds are expensive. Corn and soy, soy seeds, seeds are expensive. His entire life's sustenance is, is buried in the ground out of sight. It's a precious, and he's awaiting the precious fruit. It's precious, it's valuable. But he doesn't await with, uh, with fear or with anxiety. He looks with confidence to the future, waiting the early rains. And in, in the ancient Near East, the early rains are in October. That's the first rain that, that waters the seeds and triggers the growth process. And then the late rains come in March and April. And that's what really brings the, the fruit out or the, the fat, fattening of the grain so it's ready to be harvested. He knows these rains are coming. Of course, disasters happen, I'm aware of that, but the farmer is a great example to learn about how to navigate life's difficulties. Look at the farmer. Look how patient he is. It's also encouraged by the example of the godly prophets. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The godly prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James says that they spoke in the name of the Lord. They preached the word and they suffered for it, but they were bold. You know, people don't like to hear the truth. Not much has changed. One of my biggest challenges as a pastor, should I say that? Should I say that? I've said things that I regret, and I've suffered for it. I've said things that I don't regret, and I've suffered for it. But God's counsel to me is, as a prophet with a little p, a preacher, is to suffer with patience. I don't do that very well. You should hear the complaining in our bedroom from the preacher to the preacher's wife. Oh, no. God's not working. I was awful. It's terrible. I'm suffering, but I'm not suffering with patience. The point is that we're to honor God, not honor men. 
and we keep our eyes on the Lord, our relationships are going to be jostled around. You're throwing out some elbows to this friend or to that friend, to this congregant or that congregant, this situation or that situation. You're pushing all aside. You're saying, God, what is your will in this, in this moment? Husbands, to, to talk to your wives about the truth of God is going to bring you suffering. You need to be patient. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Husbands, wash your wives with the water of the word. The notion of a bath suggests patience. But it works the other way too. Wives, win your husbands over with patience. We are often wrong and we need to be corrected. And wives, you are our teacher be patient. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 11 was hunted by the men of his hometown specifically because they wanted him to stop speaking in the name of the Lord. Ezekiel in chapter 24 suffered painful bereavement at the death of his wife as a divinely orchestrated, lived out illustration to deliver a message to the exiles that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And he wasn't permitted to grieve. He was to be patient. Daniel suffered deportation in the exile. But if he hadn't, we would never have heard from him. And the important message that he gave us, he was patient and was used by the Lord. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, the marriage breakdown itself was the message of the Lord. He suffered from his own message and he suffered patiently. Again and again and again, the privilege of being blessed and honored by God is closely connected with suffering in the prophets, and so it is in our lives. They are an example for you to consider as you're going through life's difficulties. I have a feeling that you're too soft. You know, a a guy that works with his hands, they're like tools. I mean, it feels like an, an iron hammer. Trust me, I dug a hole the other day and I have a giant blister here to prove it. My hands are soft. I mean, all this typing, I got some nice blisters on my fingertips. But put a shovel in my hand and we're going to have some we're going to have some blood flowing without before too long. I think we're soft. We we don't understand that this life requires suffering and patience, the combination, the one-two combo. Yes, suffering is a reality. Stop avoiding it. Stop denying it. But then do it with some grace, with some character, with something that sparkles of the other world, the new world. Do it with patience. And who better to look to in this regard than the mighty Job? He's the third example in our text of this this mentor. Have you ever read Job? We're going to get a chance to go through Job. I'd encourage you, if you haven't read it, it's long. It's 42 chapters. And from chapter 3 to chapter 41 is dialogue. And it's a poem. And it's confusing. And we have three characters on the one side, and we have Job on the other. These three are Job's friends. 
and they're telling Job what he needs to do. And Job's arguing back and forth and back and forth. And you're like, I don't know who's right. It seems like his friends is right. Well, it seems like Job is wrong. It seems like Job's right. It seems like his friends are wrong. I, I must have read Job 40 times in my life. Four zero. I've read 42 chapters 40 times in my life as a Christian, at least. I still don't understand Job. But we're going to learn about Job. And part of the point of Job is that it's so confusing when you experience trials. It's like the lights on your car going out. And that's, Job is, is, is an extended experience of driving on a mountain highway without lights on, running into the railing and almost running over the cliff. And James tells us, look at Job. Look at him. Look at what he did. The steadfastness of Job. You've heard of it. Now, Job wasn't altogether patient. But he was steadfast. And in the end, his impatience was won over by his patience. This is a good example for us. Job is far from perfect. Righteous Job is very unrighteous at times. But he's steadfast. And in the end, you know, Job repents. He repents. Job's a great example for us. He's a great mentor in navigating life's difficulties. Finding your way through life's difficulties or trials can be extremely scary. It isn't easy. God provides helpful instructions from his word. He shows you the importance of patience. He gives you the inspiration of biblical mentors. I'm calling these godly examples. The third one, which I'm only going to mention, I'm out of time, is the comfort of God's character. Verse 11. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I've actually mentioned this throughout my sermon this morning. God has a plan. Job didn't know what God's plan was. He found out in the end, and he was rewarded. God's plans, like the farmer's seed, take time to develop. Think about the fact that God has a plan. When I mention that frame on the, on the picture, you're staring at this situation. This is what troubles do. They fill your brain. You have no space to think about anything else. You're in crisis. But God's plan and remembering that God has a plan helps us to back up. He says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, the maturing, developing, emerging, growing, perfect plan and will of God. That's what that means. The purpose of the Lord is to make you like himself. And trials are how he's doing it. And thank God he is compassionate and merciful. Well, as we conclude, I want to encourage you. You heard me say it earlier. I want you to get a mentor. You need mentors. We're doing a marriage course right now as a church, and we, have, we had eight couples yesterday. It was awesome. And we promised these eight couples that we'd give them mentors. Now, the mentor is not a fountain of perfection and wisdom. The mentor is a little farther down the road who can say, yeah, it's hard. I know what you mean. I've been there. 
You think that's hard? The mentor is, is someone who can pray for you. A mentor is someone who can guide you. Like my mentor guides me, even by email and an occasional phone call. I'd like to also encourage you to think about what farming projects you're currently involved in. I'm not talking about landscaping. I mean, something that you're doing that takes time to develop. Maybe you're beginning an education. My daughter is getting ready to go to college. That takes time to develop. Four years for most people. You can't just jump into that. She's given a great deal of thought to it and a lot of things have gone into the decision. What projects are you involved in? What does God have you doing right now? How are you doing with the way that that is developing? Are you struggling? Are you frustrated? This morning's scripture is intended to help you in this specific area. This frustrating delay that you're experiencing in this project, whatever it is, or a relationship, this morning's scripture is telling you you need patience. You need to be stronger than you are. You need endurance. And I'd like to know finally if there's a part of your life where you're grumbling against someone or complaining. The problem with this, our text tells us, is that the judge is right at the door. And the very standard you're using on that guy or that, that gal, God is going to use on you. You see, well, that's fine. I'm doing really good in that area. Well, not so fast. Because God knows all your areas. All of them. Ease up on that person. Give them some room to breathe. Be patient with them. Instead of grumbling and comparing yourself to them or coveting what they have or putting them down, love them. They are your brother or your sister. Be kind to them. So let us go to the Lord in prayer with gladness and joyfulness of heart that only comes from an established heart, a heart established in Christ. Let's go to God in gladness and joyfulness and ask him to do these things for us to make us patient. Let us pray. Father, as we close in prayer, we thank you for your holy word. It is so helpful, very practical, and gives us the guidance that we need to navigate life's difficulties. I pray, Lord, that what has been said this morning will have honored you and been helpful to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University, we'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.